Amen. Hey, uh, thanks, guys. I'm going to try very carefully not to fall over Eric's upright base here because that costs more money than uh, I have in my pocket. Hey, I'm Daniel Wagner. I'm glad to be here with you today. I'm the student pastor here, and uh, we're continuing a series we're walking through the summer in Acts. Today we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 8, but before we go there, I want us to draw a little tension in the room. Uh, if you're looking at me right now, just so I can go ahead and air this out, and I look a little tan, it's not because I was at the beach, it's because for the last six or seven days I've been at uh, Young Life Camp in northern Georgia with uh, about, mm, I don't know, 80-ish 10th grade boys at JA and Prep, and uh, if you want a, a story later about how I, uh, with the help of a few other guys, saved our area from getting in a large brawl with Knoxville, a group from Knoxville, then ask me later and I may tell it to you depending on whether or not I think your ears are too sensitive to hear it. So anyway, um, excited to be here this week, excited to be out of that place. So if I'm a little extra happy, then that's why. Uh, I'm going to put a word up on the screen, and this is what we're talking about today. Uh, oh wait, sorry, I literally meant a word. Uh, the word is bitterness. <laughs> and it's going to be there soon. Uh, bitterness. Now, whenever you hear that word, think about that word, it probably has a lot of different meaning. Bitterness. Now, that sounds harsh, right? How many people in the room would say that they're bitter, that they're bitter people? Probably not a lot of us, right? If you are, you probably are a bitter person because you've got the boldness to call yourself that. We're going to take a look at this, at how life sometimes is just difficult, and how we settle into this place of being bitter, and what Jesus has for us instead. Bitterness. If, you, if we just ventured to look at uh, bitterness in a couple of different ways today, one of them would be the bitterness uh, of the church, of us as an institution, the way people view us, and the other would be the bitterness of individuals, that we're people who can settle into a place of bitterness in our heart. If you whipped out your iPhone, or non-iPhone users, I apologize for being exclusively Apple in my house, uh, if you whipped out your phone and you Googled something about bitterness and church, if you looked up any kind of survey, uh, a Barna survey, you could go home and you could look up, why are people bitter about church? You would be maybe surprised, maybe not, by how many people have been hurt by the church as an institution. We've been hurt by the church because of words that I found like hypocritical people, insincere religion, inauthentic faith, abuse of power, self-righteous, hypocritical. When we know that the church, Jesus gave the church to his people as the thing that we're called to, to be a part of as it moves in the world, that we're called to put our life inside the body of Christ as believers. So I'm glad you're here today because you're following Jesus by being here today to connect to a local church and be a part of what God's doing in the big C church around the world. But there's hurt and pain that comes from within and from without because of the church. Bitterness in your own life, your relationships. Maybe things haven't worked out the way you thought they would. If you're single, maybe you want to be married. If you're married, maybe you wish you were married to somebody else. If, you're, if your kids aren't good enough, you wish that you could switch children with someone, which is frowned upon in most cultures, but 
Uh, we may make an exception here later, just you know, case by case basis. This bitterness can set in, right? This deep resent, this wishing that there was something else, that things were a different way. Maybe it's a dream you had that was never fulfilled. Something that you wish you could have done, could have been a part of, could have seen. If life just would have worked out differently for you, then maybe that would be it. Just bitterness in our dreams. And then work, where we spend all of our life. Maybe you're bitter in your work. Maybe you've got a boss or a job or a different circumstance that you wish you had. But there's this deep-set bitterness inside of us. No one in this room uh, has ever been in a place where you, you probably haven't experienced a little bit of this. So we're going to look to Acts chapter 8 and what may not initially feel like uh, a story about circumstance is one of the greatest stories of circumstance, I think, is in the Bible. So we're going to put the word up on the screen, the word, word, the capital W word, the Bible. Here we go. Uh, this is Acts 8. We're going 1 through 24. If you want to look in the Bible in front of you, do that. It's on the screen for people like me who can't read small words. Here's how it goes. And Saul approved of his execution. This is referring to Stephen, the first martyr. So Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in the city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man has the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. After seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought that you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours. Pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered... 
pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Long passage. Thanks for bearing with it. In this is one of the greatest stories of circumstance I think we see in the Bible. So there are two major characters here. You know, Saul's mentioned, Stephen's mentioned. We're getting places with those guys. But there's these two characters, right? We have Simon, who's this magician. And we have Philip, who is a deacon. So whenever Stephen was martyred, the church in Jerusalem was sent out. Jerusalem was no longer a safe place for them. And that's really when God began to do a great work of sharing the gospel uh, all around the world. And we still live in the fruit of those original people's faithfulness of sharing the gospel. We are connected to them because of their faithfulness living in God's plan. So we've got these two characters. Philip goes into Samaria. Now, Philip in Jerusalem, I'm sure, scared for his life, terrified. I mean, we hear about Saul and the religious leaders of the day going in and dragging people out of their houses and imprisoning them for believing in Jesus. So the church had, had a choice. They could have either forsaken everything. They could have said, oh, this Jesus, you know, great, but uh, oh, maybe not that great. Maybe not worth my life. I'm kind of just going to go back to the way things were. Or they could go and do what Jesus had commanded them to do. So Philip went out to Samaria. Now, if you've been in church for a little while or you've been around Christianity, you know that Samaria is kind of a hot topic place, kind of a you know, place nobody wants to be. Uh, in Samaria, there was this racial, religious tension. Samaritans were viewed as half-breeds by good Jewish people. Uh, the Samaritans had kind of twisted uh, Judaism at that time to kind of make it a, a personal religion. There was a lot of heated kind of racial undertones and classism and elitism that happened. But Philip went to Samaria because that's where God called him to go. So Philip is in this place that nobody wanted to be. I mean, I'm talking nobody. If whenever they got together before they left, they sat around and they uh, put a bunch of places on the board. You know, if it was like a draft and it was like, all right, uh, Samaria, uh, anybody got Samaria? Uh, all right, great. Uh, we're on to the next. Oh, Damascus, who wants to go to Damascus? That's how it would have gone. But Philip went to Samaria and he didn't pout while he was there. He wasn't upset by his circumstance, as far as we know. But what we see is Philip doing great works. We see Philip healing and casting out demons. And he did those things, as we've talked about in that day. Uh, the, the works that they did backed up their message in the early church. So while they came out with this message of Jesus, a resurrected Christ, a bold claim, uh, people wanted to see proof. And the Holy Spirit was doing great works, like casting out demons and healing people. So person after person after person in Samaria came to know Jesus and came to follow Jesus. Then we're introduced to this character, Simon. Simon was a magician. Simon was working people. Now, magicians were usually, uh, in that time, considered to tap into demonic powers, so there's a little bit of religious tension there between those guys. So Simon is hustling, man. I mean, the magicians at that time, they would go from place to place, and they would do works, and they would expect money in return. If someone had a cool trick, they would offer them money so that they could learn their trick. So we see in these two characters, we see Simon as this guy who's hustling and he's doing these works and he's building his own kingdom and he's making a name for himself. People said that he was great. From the least to the greatest, this guy had street cred. He was someone who they said, this guy has the power of God that is called great. 
which was an expression in that time for this guy has got something really special going on. This is a powerful guy. So we've got these two characters in opposition to each other. We see the way that this story lays out, plays out. Uh, this whole, just so we can clarify, I'll move on together. Uh, the Holy Spirit was withheld from this group, really in a, in a big way. We're not going to live here, but we'll get here later in Acts, I promise. Uh, a kind of uniting of the church and of different areas, different races, Jews and Gentiles, so that there wasn't this classism, elitism thing. Uh, people from Jerusalem came down to unite the church by praying that they would receive the Holy Spirit. So God withheld the Holy Spirit from those people in that time for that reason. So if you had that theological question, great. If you didn't, I apologize for the 30-second tangent. So uh, anyway, no dying questions in your heart. That's my desire. So anyway, as we get on with the story, we see that, uh, that Simon said he believed, and then uh, whenever people came from Jerusalem to lay on hands for them to receive the Holy Spirit, Simon kind of went back to his old ways and said, this is a neat trick. I want this. I want what God is doing here. I like what these people can do. I like what God's doing in these people's lives. So what's he do? He reverts to the magician way and he says, hey man, I'll pay you if you give me this power. And what do we see? We see that the gift of God can't be bought with money. And what does it say about Simon that there was a root of bitterness within him. I'm not much of a gardener. Uh, if you drove past my house, I would be embarrassed of my yard and my trees, so I won't let you know where I live, and, um, and so that you can't vandalize my house, because I'm a student pastor. That just kind of happens anyway. No, I'm just playing. Um, people know where I live, but not you guys. Okay, so anyway, uh, roots, right? Roots feed, and they nourish, and they go down, and they're, they're an anchor and a life source. And we see in Simon that there was this root of bitterness that deep inside of him, something was corrupt, that he wasn't satisfied. So in this story, here's the takeaway for us today that we're going to live in for the next couple of minutes, that God calls us to be people who choose joy. There's this option, right, that we see in these two characters. We see Philip and we see Simon. We see a guy who's pouring his life out who's living in mission in God, who's in a difficult place in a hard circumstance where nobody wants to be, and then a guy over here who's hustling, making a name for himself, building his own empire, upset when things don't go his own way. We see joy and we see bitterness. We really have three things to take away, I think, from, uh, from the way that Philip lived his life. One is godly motivation. Philip was motivated by what God was doing in his life, what God had called him to do. Simon was motivated by himself and by selfishness. So we see in Philip this, this mission that Jesus had put him on. He had heard what Jesus had for his life, that in Jesus there was an abundance of joy, that in him there's fullness of joy, that Jesus calls us to an abundant life, that he calls us to enjoy him and to make him known in our life, that that's our purpose. And Philip, when the times got hard and circumstances became difficult, what did he do? He got out and he did it, motivated with a purpose. And then we see Simon, who had a selfish motivation. He wanted that accolade. He wanted that acclaim. He wanted people to love and celebrate him. And what do we see? That that runs out eventually, and it turns into bitterness. Godly motivation, godly identity is second. These guys were operating out of two different types of identity. 
So we see Philip, who was living in the new identity of who Jesus had made him, right? Philip was at one point a Jew, as people who were alive in that time. Jesus came, Jesus did what he did, Philip heard the message of Jesus, his life changed. He found a new identity. Then we see Simon, who also received the same message, but in his heart there was something that was off, still a root of bitterness. And I think there's a lesson for us in the church that these people, both in this story at a point, sounded like religious people, right? These were both guys who were in the church, both guys who, who might have prayed to accept Jesus, both guys who were in the room whenever the people from Jerusalem came. These were religious people. So sometimes the spirit of religiosity that's penetrated the heart of Mississippi can be bad for us. They were both doing the right things. They were both saying the right things. On the outside, both guys probably looked similar for a little while. But on the inside, there's this identity that Philip had, Simon didn't. An identity to live for Jesus and an identity to live for yourself. The way of Jesus is the selfless way that may not make sense on paper, but we know that when we deny ourselves, we're blessed. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to deny ourselves and to follow him. That doesn't make sense on paper, but we know that in that life, there's the fullness of joy. But in a life where we're selfish and we live for ourselves, where our identity is found in what we can do and the way that people celebrate us, we know that that's the life that produces bitterness and disappointment and a lack of joy. And then the last, these guys depended on two different types of goodness. We need to be the people who depend on godly goodness. Now, godly goodness is not that God is good in this context, which he is, but it's the good that God is, the ultimate that God is, the goal he is, the satisfaction he is, the perfection he is, that those are the things that are going to fuel us in our life. So that's what we see. We see in Simon someone who thought, you know, I really enjoy making my name for myself. I want this trick. I want people to like me. I want people to celebrate me. This is my good and my goodness. This is where I'm going to find my value and my worth, my identity and my motivation. My good is going to be a different kind of good, a good of myself. But then in Philip, what do we see? We see someone who sets his eyes on the Lord and who says, God, you are my ultimate good. You are my ultimate treasure. Everything I have and am comes from you. Check this out. Here are a couple different passages talking about the goodness of the Lord for us as we think about ways that we can follow him. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my portion in the land of the living. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So we see this, right? We see this tension. We see my good, my name, my kingdom, my accolades, my celebration. And then we see, God, you're where all my good comes from. God, you're where all my worth comes from. God, I want to live my life for you. God, you are my greatest treasure, my greatest joy. There's nothing good in this world apart from you. Uh, for you recovering Presbyterians in here, here's a, a quote from Calvin. 
John Calvin. Don't say I never did anything for you. Uh, here we go. Uh, if you're not a recovering Presbyterian, I'll slip some Wesley in there or something later, whatever works for you. Uh, here we go. Uh, it will not suffice simply to hold that there is one whom all ought to honor and adore unless we're also persuaded that he is the fountain of every good and that we must seek nothing elsewhere than in him for until men recognize that they owe everything to God, they're nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, that's how old this is. Only horses say nay in 2017. <laughs> nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. And we get this, right? We get this tension. We know what it's like. We say we want to live for God in our hearts. We want to put him first. But something breaks down along the way. What is that? There's this last truth before we turn. Uh, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We can search the scripture. We can hear each other's stories and what God's doing in our life. And we know that our identity and our motivation and where we draw our goodness from is all in Jesus. And we know that in this room, right? I mean, we're his people. We are, we are in church on a Sunday morning. We get that. But somewhere along the way, this breaks down, right? That would have been a great sermon if we lived in a bubble <laughs> and everybody just had a pretty little nuclear life with no stress. But if I asked you, what do you resonate with more? With this category of joy or this category of bitterness? And you really thought deep, what is the pattern of my life? Is my life a life of joy that reaches for Jesus, that sees God as my ultimate good? Or am I mad at the way that things have turned out? We see that in this life of joy that we are working for God, not because we have to, but because we get to. We are caught up in his mission. We are not uh, unnecessary in his eyes. We are precious and he loves us and he gives us purpose. And in this life of bitterness, we just feel like we've gotten less than everybody else. Like God has wronged us. Like God owes us. We feel entitled to this happiness in our life. All of us do. I do. It's part of the American dream, right? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, right? You learn and then forget that in the fourth grade and then learn it again and then forget it and then Will Smith is in a movie and then you remember it's pursuit of happiness. So that's what we feel like are our, our, our rights in the world, right? To be happy and to be satisfied and fulfilled. And we know that we only find that in Jesus. We're not going to find that on our own. We only find that in Jesus. But it breaks down. And here's what I encourage you with today. To not let your circumstances steal your joy. Don't let your circumstances steal your joy. That's really what it is. When life is great, man, it is easy for us to love God. When everything's convenient, it's like, yep, God, you sure are my greatest treasure. All these good and perfect gifts, look at all my stuff. This all comes from above. You know, like, that's why we hashtag blessings. And there's like, 
PTL, you know? And half the emojis are like this and this, you know? Like, we just, we really get that when times are good, right? When things are going great, we're like, yep, God, you are my treasure. And uh, if you brought me more treasure too, that would be great, you know? Like, that's what we do. That's who we are. But when things break down, when our dreams uh, fail us, and when we're dissatisfied at home or at work or whatever situation we have in our life, that is when we really have an opportunity to choose joy. As I looked at this this week and thought, wow, what really makes people bitter? Like, what is it about life when it disappoints us that, that we just can't deal with anymore? And I found this one term that really stood out to me the most. The most. It's this, this goal, this term goal disengagement, which is just at the limit of my being able to understand words. Bigger than that, I'm out the window, but that, I can get that, right? Goal disengagement. You just take the discs off the end, we're good. Okay, so we're going to break this down together. Goal disengagement is this idea that whenever something is set in front of us, we have a goal, which really, you know, that's all life is, right? It's just a series of accomplishing goals, right? There are things in front of us. We say, I want to do that. Got that done. Boom. I want to do that. That didn't work out. Okay. That goes to the side. All right. What's the next goal? And that's just kind of how life works, right? We're moving along, living day after day after day, decision after decision after decision. But there are some psychologists that I, I really read this week that, that really feel pretty passionately about this and their research that this concept of goal disengagement whenever you have this goal that's in front of you and it's too hard too far away too difficult you quit now this could turn into a TED talk really quickly but I'm going to get back to the gospel <laughs> this idea is true for us right we have this ideal we have this, this circumstance that we think Ah, uh, this is going to be it. When I get here, this is it. When I do this, this is it. If this person would just do this, then we would be okay. We all play this game. But what happens? Either we get it and it's not good enough, or we don't get there and we grow bitter and angry and wish that we had a different hand. In Simon and in Philip, we see these two things. We see in Simon this expectation that we can all fall into sometimes. That God owes us. God, you owe me what I want. You owe me what I need. God, you are working for me. You're my God. You're my magical Santa Claus that lives in the sky and takes care of my needs. I just ask you what I want, you give it to me, and when you don't, I'm mad. And we put God on our terms. But really, we know that God's our God, we live in his world, and his desire is to bless us abundantly. Whenever we ask for things, if they're dumb and we don't get them, it's because he has a greater purpose. Whenever we pursue something and we don't get there, even if it was what God wanted, he's not going to leave or forsake us. When we fail him, he gives us better things the next time. Our life of pursuing Jesus, you guys know this just as well as me. We could open up a microphone on the stage and person after person after person could come up and testify to how God does not give up on us and how God moves in lives. 
but we forget that God moves in difficult circumstances. Whenever we're in the middle of a difficult situation, a difficult time, a difficult decision, it's like we completely forget that God's been faithful. That happens in my life so much. This past week, um, Carly and my wife and I uh, really had um, a difficult problem in one of our friends arise. Um, I'm talking crippling, disappointing. I mean, we hoped, you know, that, that like this person would not do this, right? We could see that it was a potential pattern for their life, and we prayed that that wouldn't happen. And when it did happen, we were disappointed, <laughs> upset, questioned God. God, how, how could this happen? What could we have done? How could this have been different? And what could have happened to us could happen to any of us. What happened to Simon in the story? When things don't go your way or you don't like the way life shakes out, you get bitter. And you get angry. And you get resentful. And you question and you get mad. But can I tell you this? that when we trusted that the Lord had this situation and when we sought out wise counsel and people to take care of this with, ways that we could alleviate this burden in our life, when we came together with this community and this place, it was such a blessing for us this week. What started out with what could have been a crippling low for our 2017 probably is going to be remembered as one of, one of the strongest, most fond memories I have of the church being the church and uh, people who we love coming around us in a difficult time. This happened to the church, and I think this happens to us. We have difficult circumstances, things we have to do. And when those things come, that's when we really follow Jesus. The difficult circumstances and the discomfort are what really pushes us to follow Jesus. That's what happened to the early church. That's when they did what they were called to do. They did things like go out because Jesus told them to go out. Put that next one on there. Cool. We're going to roll through a bunch of these. Sorry. Uh, it went out as Christ had gone out. Next. It sold its goods and gave to the poor. It left its father, mother, houses, lands to go everywhere and preach the word. It made disciples and taught them to work, follow, and obey Jesus. It took up its cross and it followed Jesus. It rejoiced in tribulation and persecution, shook the dirt from off its feet and moved on when people refused to hear. It healed and exercised, raised the dead, bore lasting fruit. God has called us to do things like this in our life. God's put us on mission. He's put us on his mission. We're living our life for him. We're pursuing him. He has things for us that he's called us to do. God has prepared good works for us in advance. And living in joy is only found whenever we live on God's mission. Those things are synonymous. We don't find joy unless we are living our life for God. And the difficult circumstances are what pushes us to do that. 
when we're in our own and we're in the comfortable place of blessing and good times, am I motivated to do what Jesus has called me to do? Sometimes. But when the going gets tough and I have a difficult circumstance, I've got a decision. I can be bitter or I can do what God's called me to do. I can push through whatever skepticism or anger or frustration that I have, whatever difficult relationship, whatever it is, whatever this hard circumstance is, those are the things that show us our need for God. And those are the things that show us that our purpose really is found in him. There are three things for us as we wrap up. We've got to remember what God has done. We got to remember what God can do for you. We got to remember what we're called to do. What God has done, what God can do, what we are called to do. What's God done for us? He's given us the greatest gift of all in Jesus. Each of us are sinful, right? Because of our sin, we deserve to be away from God forever in hell, but Jesus loved us too much to let us be like that. So we left heaven came to earth, lived a perfect life, and gave us an incredible life here on earth. We're not just waiting to get to heaven for the fullness of joy. We're not just waiting to get to heaven to experience Jesus. We've got full life here. And we've got to take that and live our life for that. That's what God has done for us. Now, we think about what God can do for us, right? We don't need to live in a system like Simon where we think, God, you're working for me. Neat trick. I want this in my life. God, I'm jealous of what you're doing in this person's life. I want that. You owe me this. I'm a better Christian than them. You ought to be working for me like you're working for them. God, I don't know why you would do this for them because I'm better than this. Right? We do these things. We think that God owes us. We think that God works for us. We've got to think about what God has done for us more than what God can do for us. And he wants to bless us richly. If you hear me say anything today, hear that. God wants to love you and lavish good and perfect gifts on you. Might not look like what you want, but that's what he's got for you. And then what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to live our life on mission for God. We're supposed to live as people who are obeying what he's called us to do. And we're not doing that out of a guilt or some kind of complex where we feel like we owe God or we've got to do enough to make God love us more because then he's going to give us good stuff. We see that that's not how that works. That's what Acts 8 teaches us, that in difficult circumstance, whenever we're people who fix our eyes on Jesus and not on ourselves, then that's when we have lasting joy. Good works is not going to give you joy. But we've got to remember that God has called us to be his people. Only when we live on mission for him do we really find joy. And it's our privilege to live for him. We can look at all that God's called us to do, all the commandments, all the weight of things, and we can be like, God, this is a, this is a crushing load. God, I feel like there's all this stuff you don't want me to do and all this stuff you do want me to do, and, and this is just hard. I don't know if I can do this. But he has not left us alone. The Holy Spirit's inside of us. And when we do things, it's really God at work in us. Band's going to come up. I'm going to read two quotes. We're going to be done. This is a, a hymn by John Owen. And I think it really captures the spirit of us living for Jesus. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, 
since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice, transform a slave into a child and duty into choice. Right? That's us. Living for Jesus is no longer a duty. When we see how great he is and how much he loves us, when we see that he calls us to a life of joy and a life of purpose, why would we not leave the bitterness, the selfishness, the personal agenda, kingdom building behind and be who Jesus has called us to be? He's making us into new people. Here's C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. Great chapter. Great passage here. It's when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, then I first begin to have a real personality of my own. There are no real personalities anywhere else until you've given yourself to him. You will not have a real self. But there must be a real giving up of the self. You must throw it away blindly, so to speak. Christ will indeed give you a real personality. The very first step is to try to forget about yourself altogether. The real new self, which is Christ's and also yours, yours because it's his, it will come when you're looking for him. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions, your favorite wishes, every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in that long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you'll find him and with him everything else. The life for Jesus is the best life. The life for ourself, bitterness, pain, hurt.